Hello, this is Lindsay Morgan at the Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, a University of California think tank that addresses global challenges to peace and prosperity through rigorous, policy-relevant research, training, and engagement. So we're here today with Steph Haggard, the Lawrence and Sally Krauss Professor of Korea-Pacific Studies here at UC San Diego. Steph serves as the director of the Korea Pacific program and has done extensive research on North Korea in particular. He's also a longstanding, has a longstanding interest in transitions to and from democratic rule and the current phenomenon of democratic backsliding. Steph, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. So your book with Robert Kaufman, Backsliding, Democratic Regress in the Contemporary World, was recently published by Cambridge University Press. And it's it's hard to think of a more timely book than this book. So your book looks at democratic backsliding in I think 16 countries. And all of these are, are relatively recent examples and interesting because they span continents, cultures, income levels, you know, going all the way from Zambia in Southern Africa to countries in Latin America, in Europe, the Middle East, and the United States, the beacon of democracy. (laughs) And so really paint a picture of this phenomenon that is um, sort of defies categories. And of course, there are recent reports from sources like the Economist Intelligence Unit and Freedom House that are also echoing this erosion of democracy uh, globally. So to start off, what is democratic backsliding and why is it happening in so many different places at roughly the same time? The answer to the the first question is obviously a lot easier than the answer to the second. Uh, but But the phenomenon of backsliding basically captures a new way in which democracies regress. Because if we look at the long history of the 20th century, and actually even going back to the interwar period, Uh, Many episodes of regression to authoritarian rule took place through the phenomenon of the coup. And so we've seen, for example, in Thailand and more recently in Myanmar, this form of of classic regress. But what makes backsliding peculiar is the fact that it's driven by duly elected incumbents. And I emphasize duly elected because these are not systems in which the elections which brought the autocrat to power are necessarily flawed. It's just that once the autocrat is in power, he or she undertakes actions which then weaken democratic rule. So that's that's one of the distinctive features. And when we talk about regresses or backsliding of democracy, we mean basically three buckets of things. First, removal of horizontal checks on the executive. Second, diminution of rights that citizens typically enjoy, and their media plays a very central role because control of the media is a part of the strategy. And then finally, an extremist actually going after the integrity of the electoral system itself. It's interesting to think about the erosion of democracy occurring, being carried out by democratically elected leaders. What are the conditions that allow these leaders and their parties to chip away at democracy? Well, before I turn to that, let me just say one more thing about conceptions of democracy, because one of the things we found in writing this book is that the conception of liberal democracy that most of us have 
is one in which democratically elected governments are in fact checked in a variety of ways. You know, that's very much the Madisonian tradition is that people are bad basically, or they're potentially bad or potentially self-interested. And the way you check that is by building institutions that limit what executives can do. Uh, and that's the whole you know, traditional concept of the separation of powers and checks and balances and so forth. But there is a completely different conception of democracy, which is sometimes associated with Republican tradition or what I call a majoritarian tradition, in which the majority should rule. They should have the power to do what they want and that they shouldn't be checked by the deep state, by the courts, by rights, by these other commitments. And I think that part of what we're seeing in backsliding is the rise of a different conception of democracy. Majorities should more or less be completely unrestrained in terms of what they can do. And of course, that violates our, our sense of liberal democracy, um, includes all of these varieties of checks we're talking about. That's interesting. And it makes me think in terms of conceptions of democracy. I think it's towards the end of your book where you talk also about part of the conception of democracy, at least in an idealistic world, is an enlightened voter. And I, I, there's a portion of the, towards the end of your book talking about the, the sort of ideal versus the reality of the majority of voters who have a thin sense of the issues. Not, not a fully rational conception of democracy, which emotion and tribalism play quite substantial roles. And I've been interested in that issue as well. You know, we often assume, or political scientists assume, that you know, individual voters are at least loosely rational. <laughs> They don't spend a lot of time on politics, but they're aware of their interests and they see right. competing parties and they make judgments on the basis of the parties that advance their interests. But this gets into directly the second question you ask, which are conditions. And our approach in this book was really to try to uh, look across a range of countries that had experienced this phenomena. The early examples would include Russia, if we considered it ever democratic at all, and Venezuela up through the classic examples of Turkey and Poland and Hungary and so forth. But what we tried to do was somewhat inductive, which is to look at these cases in which we had seen measured patterns of regress using a variety of indicators that are out there from organizations like VDEM and Freedom House and others. So to identify uh, countries that appeared to be moving backwards and then try to figure out what was it that was happening? You know, it's not exactly the standard social science design. You know, it's somewhat more inductive. And clearly a common feature of all of these systems was polarization. And polarization is a kind of seedbed for backsliding because of what it, the way it divides electorates and also what it uh, leads electorates to permit in the political behavior of their leaders. You define polarization as the process through which polities increasingly divide not only over policy or ideology, but over identity. Can you talk a little bit about how, how that process of polarization has played out in the United States? And actually, I have a question. Um, when did you start work on this book? Was it pre-Trump or were you inspired by Trump to write this book? Well, actually, we had written a book, which was a, is a very dense academic tome called Dictators and Democrats, in which we were trying to get at the economic issues around uh, transitions to and from 
democratic rule and the extent to which economic factors such as inequality matter, which we yeah. ultimately found not to be as central as we expected. But the reason we define polarization, and it's not just our definition, it's a wider definition in such a broad way, because we found that, that societies can polarize in, in a variety of different ways and along a variety of different dimensions. But what really counts is the devolution in thinking about the opposition as a group which is essentially loyally different to one that is really an enemy, that's traitorous. And in some cases, this was uh, a result of deep economic cleavages. For example, in a country like Venezuela, where Hugo Chavez was just a populist and was driving his, his path to power by focusing on economic grievances in a country that was increasingly unequal. And of course, there are elements of that here. But you also see issues like race and ethnicity, cosmopolitan versus nationalist views of the country, these other cleavages. But in some ways, what's, those things are actually less important, curiously, than the fact that the, the electorate really divides so profoundly that you see your political opponents as enemies. If it's not just inequality, the persistence of, and deepening of inequality, to what extent is it driven by economic crises that do in fact push people into poverty or, or create populations that are uh, more vulnerable than they were previously? Like how much is that a part of what's going on here? You know, I think if social science or uh, social scientists are honest on this question, they, they would admit, as I would admit, that it's just extraordinarily difficult to tease out the effects of these economic crises and, and increasing economic inequality from other points of division. For example, we see in the United States that obviously the 2008-2009 the financial crisis had a big role in the emergence of a new wave of right thinking reflected in the Tea Party movement, for example. At the same time, it also triggered anxieties that were racial and ethnic in nature. I remember President Trump's descent on the golden elevator, that speech, theme one, was about immigration. And subsequently, the signals that were sent with respect to the white population of the United States playing on anxieties about us becoming a minority majority country or particular areas becoming majority minority just became integral yeah. to the, the, whole, um, the whole thing. But I think what's most important is the way in which whatever the various bits of cleavages are, and in Central Europe, for example, they have a lot to do with cosmopolitanism, with being part of Europe versus being, you know, true Hungarians or true Poles. What matters is the way you view your political adversaries. Because once you define an adversary as really equivalent to the enemy of the people, then the most important point follows, which is you'll accept a lot yeah. of behavior which you otherwise wouldn't think acceptable because the other side is so much worse and poses so much risk. And autocrats are great at fueling that sense of broader anxiety that the opposition is not only a loyal opposition, but is traitorous. And of course, that's just completely destructive. There's a need or like desire in these kinds of discussions to say, how did this happen? Like, where did it start? But what you're saying is that, of course, you can't point to any one thing. 
I don't want to hide behind the typical social scientist who says, oh, look, the story is complex. That's not useful. Inequality is a piece of this. Economic anxiety is a piece of this. Racial anxieties and immigration are a piece of this. Maybe even technological change is a piece of this. It's crucial to grant executives the leeway to start to pick apart the democratic system is the belief that the opposition is disloyal. Because it's that which basically opens the door for autocrats to, to say, we are in an emergency, we're in a crisis, give me the power to act. Your book says that autocrats, quote, test the normative limits one initiative at a time, with each derogation making subsequent steps easier to pursue in a process that is incremental in nature. And you talk about the psychological effects of this subtle, gradual incrementalism as people you know, gradually accept a stretching or a warping of the boundaries until they find themselves in a place where, you know, that would have been unthinkable five years earlier. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how it's played out here in the United States it's very much a feature of virtually all of these exercises. And we were pulled between two different ways in which incrementalism mattered. One is that, that the components of democracy, of liberal democracy, are, to use an awkward phrase, mutually constitutive. And by that, what I mean is that the integrity of the electoral system depends on the courts. And the, the courts rely on people having rights to bring cases and not being locked up. Rights depend on the courts. And, you know, and so you get this bundle of features of democratic rule, which uh, are exactly that. They're a bundle. So incrementalism affects um, democratic rule in part by starting to pick that bundle apart. For example, if you go after the media or you go after the courts, then you're not just going after the media and the courts, you're going after rights, going after the capacity of people to assemble or to petition or to or speak freely, and ultimately all the way to the, the kind of bar, which is when you start to interfere in the integrity of the electoral system, because at that juncture, that's really where you run the risk of making the transition between democracy and authoritarianism altogether. Because if the opposition is effectively limited, its probability of taking power falls towards zero, then you're really not in a democratic system anymore. No one would say that that happened in the United States. People even argue about it with respect to Hungary and Poland and so on, and Brazil. There are clearly cases as in Turkey or Venezuela or Russia, where, again, if Russia was democratic, you fell into systems that were just couldn't really be called democracy. But, you know, there is an increasing interest in social psychology. And, and this idea that incremental changes are, are both normalizing and disorienting, which we believe really needs to be paid attention to. You start saying things, you know, this is the big lie, you start saying things like, you know, the press is corrupt, the press is an enemy of the people, don't believe the press. And you hear this as a mantra, 
Uh, well, some portion of the population over time is going to gradually absorb that message and is going to screen out what the press is saying and particularly critical things it's saying about incumbent executives. There are these ways, a variety of mechanisms by which incrementalism has this disorienting effect. Was that change in, in a complex judicial law in Hungary, was that within the bounds of the normal or not? The sudden the judiciary is controlled by the executive. All, everything follows. <laughs> it starts to rule in ways which make it difficult for oppositions to counter. I think incrementalism has both of these effects. It has this effect of taking key pieces of the restraining mechanisms apart, but it also has a social psychological effect of getting people used to behavior, to language, to portrayals of the opposition, which you know, five years ago in the United States, we would have thought were virtually impossible. I'm bringing up US examples, but this, is, this can be replicated. You know, we were seeing it um, virtually everywhere where there's backsliding, this portrayal yeah. of the opposition as corrupt, you know, cases we didn't look at, the Philippines. It's portraying the opposition party as really an existential threat, the linchpin of how autocrats sort of get away with chipping away at democracy, or are there other kind of facilitating factors? Yeah, so so we've talked about two of the three things we focus on in the book. The one is this is this question of polarization, and the second one is incrementalism. But there is an intermediate step here, and in some ways, I think this is one of the contributions of the book that others who work on backsliding haven't focused on as much. And that's the key role that the legislature actually plays in this whole process. And again, this gets to complex questions about the differences between presidential and parliamentary systems and, and so on. But one of the things we found is that, you know, legislatures, certainly in presidential systems, but to some extent in parliamentary ones as well, you know, are kind of crucial checks on what the executive can do. And so the question of, of how acquiescent and pliant legislatures are and, and the extent to which they're willing to delegate powers is really a, a kind of crucial issue. This regard, you know, because most of the people listening in on this are probably Americans, the American example is, is one that we see, uh, you know, replicated in other cases. But but the U.S. is an interesting example because, because in some ways the institutions in the United States held to a surprising extent. And by that, I mean that the Republicans, when they enjoyed majorities, were unwilling to hold Trump to account for certain things that many of us would just seem were obvious derogations of his constitutional responsibilities, like making a phone call to the president of Ukraine and inviting him to interfere in the election. The lack of oversight um, removed these horizontal checks. But on the other hand, the United States Congress was never going to delegate the kind of powers to President Trump that weak legislatures in Russia or Venezuela ended up delegating to the, the Putin and Chavez. So a curious feature of backsliding is that legislatures, which are duly elected, can also play this crucial role in delegating power to the executive which then ironically ends up reducing their capacity to check the executive. So that step of what happens on the legislative front 
Because again, you know, th these are not systems which are moving towards regimes of exception, like a military rule. They ear to function like democratic institutions, and you get legislatures passing bills that essentially say, you know, the president can do what he wants. That's crucial to many of the cases that really slide into outright autocracy. I remember back to when Trump was elected and, and a lot of people were aghast. And some of the cooler heads at the time said, it's okay, the institutions will, will check him, will hold him accountable. And having these same conversations then three, four years later, I heard more than one you know, smart friend say, they were surprised that the institutions weren't as strong as they thought. But what you're saying is that you think they were relatively strong. Were you surprised at all? The Trump uh, administration, after he was defeated, filed 61 lawsuits in courts in the United States. And of those 61 lawsuits, one, you know, a very minor issue uh, concerning the proximity of election monitors to the actual vote count was upheld. 60 were rejected. I mean, that, that's an institution holding, and that's an institution which is the judiciary, and these were judges which were appointed by Trump, they were appointed by Obama, they were appointed by Clinton, they were appointed by George W. Bush, yeah. uh, basically rejecting out of hand the claims that were made. And then the other interesting story, I think, is this incredible story of a local election officials, yeah, I mean, Republicans as well as Democrats, taking tremendous pride in their jobs and, and the fact that their job was to conduct a fair election. Well, I mean, if someone really believes that their job is to conduct a fair election, then the only thing an executive can do is get on the phone and try to convince them to find votes. And, and as we know, you know, that effort proved unsuccessful. In cases where these autocrats were successful, exactly those lines of corruption of the judiciary through appointments or of local officials through being reliant on the executive yeah, and yeah. not holding and permitting um, autocrats to expand their, their power. Um, so, you know, that's the positive story. I mean, the negative story is just that the discourse, you know, the quality of political discourse would fall so low and that there would be such acquiescence to the debasement of public discourse. But in a weird way, you know, that, that wasn't, that's not an institutional factor. It's almost like a cultural factor. Things are very much harder to control. You write that the political systems of the advanced industrial states are under greater threat today than at any time since the 1930s. If the pillars of democracy are free and fair elections, protection of basic rights and liberties, and the existence of these horizontal checks on power. In countries where those pillars are being chipped away at, what can we do to restore them? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the question there is, what, what do you mean by the we? Because now we're shifting towards the physician heal thyself uh, injunction to thinking about democracy promotion and how, uh, how we might more effectively promote democracy. Um, you know, since the 1970s, starting with human rights under Carter, but expanding particularly after 1990, the United States has had a very active democracy promotion machinery in place. Mm -hmm. And there's a big debate over whether any of that's been effective and what type of activities you should focus on. You know, our analysis of backsliding suggests a few things which are fairly obvious. 
Number one is that if polarization is really so central to this process, and if polarization is increasingly playing out, not on the streets, but in social media and in the virtual realm, then clearly cleaning up and thinking about what to do about social media is just a crucial piece of trying to check this. But I think what we're learning is that it involves actions on the part of governments in terms of protecting the system from just outright illicit hacks. It involves the cooperation of the social media companies themselves to police content in some way which doesn't inappropriately damage the vibrancy of these communities, which I think obviously are important. Mm -hmm. But then it also involves a new kind of NGO you know, which is an NGO which is focused on tracking these kinds of derogations, revealing them, doing public education campaigns. The election, the 2020 election in Taiwan is often held up as a very interesting example of this. And it's a good case because Taiwan's an advanced industrial democracy. And NGOs played a very crucial role in the 2020 election in revealing uh, some of what the Chinese were doing across the strait to try to undermine that election and defeat uh, Tsai Ing-wen. So, you know, there's a whole complex of things that just surround trying to reverse social media polarization that would that stem directly from our concern that polarization matters. What surprised you as you dug deeper into this topic? I think you've actually touched on it. You know, the fact that this is going on across such diverse set of countries, you know, it's really a diverse mix. Remember that we're slicing, so to speak. You know, we're not saying all regimes in the world are the same. You know, we're talking about countries that had already achieved a modicum of electoral and even liberal democracy. That's the starting point. That's what makes this phenomenon interesting. So clearly there's a whole nother set of problems of, that deal with democracies that have never really fully or countries that have never fully transitioned from autocratic rule in the first place and are stuck in what we've come to know as, as competitive authoritarian rule. There's some degree of electoral competition, there's some degree of rights, but in the end, you know, oppositions really you know, play under debilitating disadvantage. Venezuela was considered one of the most democratic countries in Latin America for decades before it, it fell apart. Everyone thought Hungary and Poland were nestled in the bosom of the European Union. Russia, we forget the hopefulness. So just the diversity of cases which have gone, gone through this path, I think that's one of the things that surprised us the most. That enlightenment belief the Whig view of history, things are on the upward march. I mean, you know, particularly following the collapse of the Soviet Union and this famous piece by Frank Fukuyama, there was this sense of hopefulness. There, there weren't alternatives. And what we're learning is there are alternatives. They're just very protean and hard to define. They're in this space of what we call populism, you know, which combines this anti-cosmopolitan, anti-enlightenment view it's majoritarian, that's tribal, that's nationalist, very strongly nationalist. And it takes a lot of different guises, but is, is emerging as a new political type that's deeply anti-liberal. 
Do you ever think that liberal democracy will prove over the long term to have been an outlier in history? Or do you think that we will sort of hold firm to these aspirations and ideals? Well, look, I think the one thing that, that this period is teaching us is just the fragility. I mean, you said that, you know, you were struck by the fact that I said that, you know, this is the, the most serious moment for the advance yeah. in the states since the, since the, the interwar years. But yeah. if you think about it, that's actually shouldn't come as that much of a surprise because after the war, obviously, Japan and Germany were reconstituted as democracies and took off very quickly. A number of the European countries had been democracies before, and then we had the wave of democracies, which came after the onset of the so-called third wave that started in Southern Europe and spread to Latin America and so forth. So, so I mean, you know, it has been a period in which the advanced industrial democracies saw no cases of backsliding. Germany was the center of, of you know, continental civilization, most significant economy and so on, you know. So, so you know, it's, I don't think that that characterization should be, you know, so strange that this is a, the most threatening moment. But nonetheless, it's, it's just for that reason, actually, distressing that, you know, the type of political forces could emerge in, in advanced industrial democracy. But what do you still, um, you and your co-author, still not know about this topic that you really wish we understood? Well, again, I, I don't want to sound overly wonkish, but I think one of the things we found surprisingly difficult was, was just, you know, how do we think about the decline of democracy when you're not moving towards an obviously autocratic system? How do we design a measure? You know, how do we take the temperature of democracy when, when the changes which we've seen, you know, are extraordinarily subtle? I mean, take just one dimension, a very common feature of all of the backsliding cases mm -hmm. is that autocrats move very quickly to try to do something about the media. They either try to control it directly or they try to discredit it. Well, the media fights back. And in some cases, it's quite successful. You can't say that D D Donald Trump wasn't covered over the last four years. But then at the same time, he delegitimated de the media. Delegitimation, the introduction of conspiracies, big lies, and so forth. That's very hard to capture. Wouldn't say that Donald Trump was capable of silencing the media or taking it over, yet something went wrong. And if something went wrong that's crippling. You know, how do you measure it? I think that's one of the things that we found, you know, extremely difficult. And it gets to this theme of incrementalism. It's just precisely that, that we don't know how to think about these derogations or talk about them intelligently that actually makes them more threatening. We're already seeing now revisionism about January 6th. Oh, you know, this wasn't an insurrection. It was, you know, a, a riot that got a, out of hand or a peace a protest that became less than peaceful. Well, you know, then the fight begins. Does that go to the core of democracy? Well, yes, in some ways it does, but it's very difficult to calibrate or measure. That's one of the things that we find as, a, as an outstanding issue. It's just hard. How do we know that this is happening? How do we develop neutral early warning systems that, that get us thinking, hey, something's going wrong here. Yeah, there's interesting, there's such a, a disconnect between the language of someone like Trump, which is so clear, simple, sharp, connects with people, and then the language of everyone else 
of us trying to comment on what's happening, which is so disorganized and ambiguous and trying to capture the nuance. Of course, that redounds to the advantage of autocrats everywhere. You know, the Brazilian case is incredibly interesting, just very simple, direct, apparently no-nonsense arguments that go after existing elites as, as being, uh, you know, detrimental to the country and taking Brazil down the wrong path and corrupt and not having the interests of people in, in their sight. If there was one thing that you could tell American leaders or the new administration about protecting democracy, a lesson from your, your book, what would you tell them? And what would you tell the American people? It's hard to avoid cliches, unfortunately, but, but you know, I think that one of the things that, that I just think is quite central here is, is just the significance of truth, of being able to share facts. Uh, you know, I just think that this is, you know, just so important because once you introduce the capacity to claim anything mm -hmm. and allow that to stand, then obviously all of this can follow. It, it assists in polarization. It gets parties riled up in ways which are, allow them to pass powers to presidents which are beyond what they should be. And it contributes to the general deterioration in the climate, which is part of the incrementalism story. Going back to thinking about how to restore or check just outright falsehood to recraft uh, the, the political discourse is really where restraint is needed on all sides. Uh, you know, this isn't one-sided game. Uh, you know, those, when, when power shifts hands, it's also important for those who come back in as Democrats to understand that there are large numbers of people in the country and in the countries that we study that are supportive of these kinds of things figuring out how to bring them into a competitive fold where we can compete and still go out at the end of the day and drink a beer. I just think those kind of fundamental issues of truth and a willingness to accept an opponent uh, and, and not see him or her as an enemy, I think those factors are really the most fundamental ones. Thank you, Steph. Next time on the IGCC podcast, I'll talk with Jeanette Money, a professor of political science at UC Davis and an expert on global migration, about her new work on pathways to citizenship for migrants and gender and migration. I'm Lindsay Morgan. Thanks for being with us at IGCC. Have a great week.